0: Let's take a Bible and open it together. 2 Samuel chapter 15 in the Old Testament. If you didn't bring a Bible today, we'd like you to borrow our copy of the Bible. You'll find it on the back of the seat in front of you, page 225, page 225 in our copy of the Bible, or 2 Samuel 15 in your copy of the Bible. Now, you know, Judith Ray is an expert on what used to be called etiquette. It's not called etiquette anymore. It's now called social etiquette savvy. But it used to be called etiquette. And anyway, she's written a new book where she has come back out with a more modern update of all the old rules. And very interesting. uh, When I looked over a summary of this, I thought, wow, there's a lot of things I don't know. For example, did you know that he's not the waiter anymore? He is the server. And you never raise your hand or yell at the server. Eye contact only, please. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Did you know you never slurp or or blow on your food at the table? As she said, if we want music, we'll hire a pianist. Um, You never use your personal calculator to double check the bill. Did you know that? You never put on makeup or comb your hair at the table. And if you do need to excuse yourself to go to the restroom, you always leave between, never during courses. I didn't know that. All right. Um, you never order spaghetti if everybody else is ordering lobster. You uh, can dunk. Dunking is okay at the table. Burping is not. Uh, eating the cherry in your drink is okay, but having your cell phone go off during dinner is not. And there's a right way to use every knife, every fork, every spoon on the table and a wrong way. For example, did you know the correct way to eat soup is by taking the the spoon and pushing it from 6 o'clock to 12 o'clock and then making the circle back to your mouth? Did you know that? I didn't know that. Shoot, I'd never get any in my mouth. (laughs) All my soup would be north of 12 o'clock somewhere. Anyway... Isn't it interesting that in a world where there's so much relativism of what's right for you and what's right for me, isn't it interesting that still, when it comes to manners, there are rules? Now, that's not just true when it comes to etiquette. It's also true when it comes to God, because you see, God is a holy God. And by saying a holy, that God is holy, all we mean by that is simply that God has a set of righteous standards that He refuses to compromise for anybody. Now, friends, when we break those standards, there's a price to be paid. And yes, God often exacts that price with great compassion and great mercy. But nonetheless, God is serious about his standards. Now, the reason I bring all this up is because we're studying the life of the great man, David. And David is in the process of learning this lesson in spades. That when you violate God's standards, there's a price to be paid. And we want to pick up right here in chapter 15, a little bit of background. Let me make sure we're all together. David, at the zenith of his reign as king, committed adultery with Bathsheba. She became pregnant. In order to try to cover up his deed, he murdered in cold blood her husband and took Bathsheba as his own wife. Now, I'd say that was a fairly serious violation of God's standards, wouldn't you? Of course. Well, David repented. God forgave him, of course, but God informed David that David was going to suffer some consequences for the rest of his life because of what he had done. There were three. Number one, the child that Bathsheba was going to bear to him would die. That happened. Number two, that there would be turmoil in David's family, upheaval in his family the rest of his life. That happened. His, uh, his son raped his daughter. One of the other brothers killed the rapist. The other brother had to flee into exile. And there's more to come. And third and finally, God promised him that as a result of what he had done, one of his own sons would rise up and overthrow him as the king of Israel. Now, we're watching this third consequence come to pass. Right here in chapter 15, David's son Absalom, after four years of deceit and treachery, he has won the hearts of the people of Israel away from David. He has risen up and proclaimed himself to be king. And now as we pick up the story, he's on his way to Jerusalem to depose his dad. Verse 13, let's look. Verse 13. And a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David said to his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we've got to flee or none of us will escape Absalom. We've got to leave immediately. As soon as David heard that Absalom was headed for Jerusalem, David got all of his friends together and said, hey, gang, we got to get out of Dodge and we got to do it quick because this boy has killed a brother and he will not hesitate to kill a father. We need to get out of here. Now, verse. Uh, let's look at verse 16. And so the king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines behind to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted some distance away while all of his men marched by him. Skip down, if you would, to verse 23. And the whole countryside wept aloud. As all the people passed by, the king also crossed, The Kidron Valley and all the people moved on towards the desert. Now, if you're running for your life, let me tell you where you'd go if you're David. You'd go back out into the Judean wilderness. This is where David had hidden from Saul for seven years. He knew every cave out there. He knew every water supply out there. And this is where he headed when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. The way you get there from Jerusalem is you go out of the city to the east, across the Kidron Valley, up by where now the Garden of Gethsemane is, over top of the Mount of Olives and into the Judean wilderness. And this is the way that David was going up and over the Mount of Olives is how he was leaving the city. Verse 24. And Zadok, the high priest, was there too, and all the Levites who were with him, and they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, the ark of God, you all know what this looks like because you all saw the movie, right? Okay, so the ark of God, the high priest ran and they got the ark and they started to follow David out of the city. They started carrying the ark behind him. The ark was a symbol of God's presence. It was a symbol of God's blessing and God's favor. And they figured the ark needs to be with David, not with Absalom. It doesn't belong with Absalom. It belongs with David. Now, look what happened. And David said to them. David said, verse 25, The king said to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. Don't, I don't want it going with me. You take it back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, He will bring me back and He'll let me see it again. But you take it back in the city. You're to say, now, why would He send the ark back? Well, good question. And we're going to answer it in just a few minutes. But hold on to the fact that He sent it back and said no. All right, let's finish it out. Verse 30. Verse 30, it said, And David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered in shame and he was barefoot. And all the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Folks, I'll tell you, without a doubt, this verse represents one of the saddest, one of the most heart-wrenching moments, I think, in the Bible. Here David is, barefoot and in shame, being run out of the city by his own son. What a sad thing. And he stands on the Mount of Olives and he looks back over the city of Jerusalem and he he has serious doubt whether he'll ever see it again. And he stands there and weeps. Now you know the Bible records two people who stood on the Mount of Olives and wept. The first was David. There was a second person who stood on the Mount of Olives and wept and that was a fellow named Jesus. It was many years later. But one day when he was coming to Jerusalem towards the very end of his earthly life, he stood on the Mount of Olives and wept over the city of Jerusalem. And he said this, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, with his arms outstretched. How many times I desired to take you under my wings like a mother chicken takes her little chicks under her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And he stood there and wept over that. Can you imagine Jesus offering to be somebody's protector, defender, ally, and friend, and them saying, No, I'm not interested? That's what the people of Israel did, and it broke the heart of Jesus. Friends, may I say that if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that Jesus Christ is standing with His arms open saying the same thing to you that He said to these people 2,000 years ago. I want to gather you under my wings like a mother chicken does her little chicks. I want to be your protector, your defender, your ally, your friend. And the only reason I'm not is because you won't let me. Now, does it make sense that people won't let Jesus do this? Well, I wouldn't for 21 years. And I'll tell you why I wouldn't. It's because I wanted to run my life my way. That's why. I wanted to be in the left seat running the airplane, and I didn't want anybody else even in the right seat giving me suggestions, to be honest with you. I want to run my life my way. And if you want to run your life your way, you're not in the slightest bit interested in Jesus' offer. That's why the people in Jesus' day weren't interested in his offer. But I'll tell you what happened at the age of twenty one. My plane crashed and burned. It was nasty. And for the first time in my life, I opened my life up and said, you know what? Somebody else needs to run this. I'm not doing a real good job. And I invited Jesus Christ into my life. Best decision I ever made never even has crossed my mind to try to get in the left seat again. I'm happy with how he's running things. And maybe you're here today and you've never asked Jesus Christ in your life. And maybe the issue with you is, very frankly, you like running things the way you like running things. And you don't want his interference. Well, friends, let me tell you something. I can promise you that if you keep running your life your way, you're going to mess it up because all of us do. And the best thing could ever happen to you is to realize, hey, I'm not doing a great job running my own life. I need somebody else to take over as pilot here. That's what Jesus offers to do. And folks, it will be a decision you will never regret. So before you crash your plane, why don't you take him up on his offer to let him take you and be your defender, protector, ally, and friend. I hope you'll think about that. Well, that's the end of our passage for today, but it leads us to ask the really important question. And you know what that is, and you're all awake, so I know you can do it well. Ready? What is it? No. Wonderful. You say, Lon, so what? I mean, I've never marched up the, bound, the Mount of Olives barefoot, weeping, so this has nothing to do with me at all. No, 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 I'm sorry. I think it does. Let me tell you how. I don't know if you've ever read uh, more, uh, more in depth about what happened out at Columbine High School out in Colorado. But if you do, you'll find that the reason these two young men went in and started their shooting spree might not be exactly what you think. In an interesting article in the Washington Post called Dissecting Columbine's Cult of the Athlete, the article tells about how there was a school-wide indulgence of student-athletes, how certain student-athletes had even been convicted of criminal uh, crimes, well, every crime is criminal, but criminal offenses, and how nothing was done to them. Normal students would have been suspended from all kind of extracurricular activities the school administration turned its head and did nothing. How these jocks went around, engaging in physical abuse of other students, racial bullying, sexual harassment, behavior that never would have been tolerated from a normal student, and nobody did a thing. And as as, as these two young men, Eric Harris, Dylan Klebold, watched this, watched the, the partiality, the favoritism, the discrimination, the unfairness, they got so upset about it that it turned into rage. And you remember when they walked in, what was the first thing they said? Let's get the jocks. That's what they were mad about. Now, the rest of it's history, but you know one thing that I love about God? One thing I love about God is the King James Version translates it Acts 10, God is no respecter of persons. What that means is... God is not a God of partiality. He is not a God of favoritism. That God applies the same rules to everybody. The same rules apply to kings and to cooks, as David is learning. The same rules apply to pastors and plumbers. It doesn't make any difference with God. With God, Romans 2.11, there is no partiality at all. And we see this happening right here with King David. This is the man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13. This is the apple of God's eye, Psalm 17. This is the victor over the Goliath, the conqueror of Jerusalem, the empire builder of Israel we're dealing with. But, here he is, standing barefoot on the Mount of Olives, weeping in disgrace and humiliation and shame, and the worst part about it all is that he has nobody to blame but himself. He's the one who got himself in this mess. If he hadn't done what he did with Bathsheba, he wouldn't be in this mess. Now, you see, this is why I hate golf. This is why I hate golf. I'll tell you why I hate golf. Because in golf, there's nobody to blame but you. That's disgusting. That's disgusting see, in baseball, you can say it took a bad hop. In baseball, you can say the umpire made a bad call. In track, you can say somebody bumped me along the track or the wind blew me off stride. But in golf, you can't say anything. You missed a punt, your fault. You missed the drive, your fault. You put it in the woods, your fault. This is a miserable game. It is. It's terrible. No matter how encouraged and happy I am when I start 18 holes later, I'm miserable. It's terrible. Why do people do this to themselves? And you know what? I'll bet many times you're just like I am. You say, what, a bad golfer? Well, you may be. But worse, you get just like I am and just like David so many times, isn't it true, that we get ourselves in trouble and when we turn around looking for who we can blame, there's no place to look but in the mirror. It's our fault. We we made the choices, we made the decisions that got us right in the mess where we are and there's nobody to blame but ourselves. Now, when you get in that kind of a position, which I find myself in fairly often, what do you do? If God decides he's going to exact some consequences because he's not a God of partiality, and it doesn't matter whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not, it doesn't make any difference. What do you do to soften those consequences? How How do we soften the blow? How do we activate the mercy and the leniency of God in those situations when it really is all our fault? Well, that's what I want to talk about in the last few minutes that I have here, because all of us need this information. We all need it. And so how do you do that? Well, David did three things that activated the mercy, the leniency of God in his life. Because, oh, by the way, David came back and took the kingship back. And oh, by the way, David, God is thrown back. And oh, by the way, David died as the active ruling king of Israel. Did God bring him back and soften these consequences? Yes, God did. So how did David get God to, do it, to, to, to soften them and to indulge in leniency with him? He did three things. and I want to show them to you. The first, thing he did, and this will work for you, my friends. And for me, the first thing he did is David owned his stuff. He owned his stuff. Verse 25. Remember when I told you he sent the ark back? He sent the ark back and he said, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back. He'll let me see his dwelling place again. But you take that ark back. Now, why did David send the ark back? I'll tell you why. Because the high priest wanted to bring the ark with David to send a message. To send a message that David was the righteous one here. David was the offended one here. David was the one who was being unfairly persecuted by Absalom. David was the one that was having wrong things, unfair things done to him. And the ark belongs with him because God is with him because David is the one who's being treated bad. And, and David said, oh, Whoa, ho, 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 ho. You got it all wrong, pal. See, if I take the ark with me and give that impression, it's, that's all wrong. I'm not being unfairly persecuted. I'm not the one that's, who's standing with God is all okay. I'm not, being the, I'm not the one who's being treated unfairly. You guys got it wrong. I did this to myself. God is righteous in what He's doing to me. And I got no business dragging the ark along and trying to say I'm okay when the truth is I got myself in this trouble. I'm suffering under the discipline of God. You take that ark right back to the city. And you put it in the city where it belongs because for me to take it with me is to cheapen it. It means to cheapen the standards of God that I broke. You put that ark right back in the city. And let me tell you, if God shows me mercy, He'll bring me back to the city. But I'm not taking the ark of God with me that's wrong. And friends, it's not very often that you see people being that brutally honest with themselves when it comes to accepting responsibility for their own actions. You don't see it often, but when you do, it makes you want to show mercy to these people. I had a son. uh, I have three sons. One of them came to me a couple months ago and said, dad, I need to tell you something. I said, great. Tell on. He said, well, uh, I need to tell you that I lied to you. He said, I lied to you straight up. I knew what I was doing. It was deliberate. It was premeditated. And when I told you I was going this place a couple of weeks ago, I didn't go there at all. I went this other place. I said, why would you do that? He said, well, because I wanted to go that other place. And I thought you would said no. And I wanted to go. He said, but dad, my conscience bothers me so bad that I've come back to tell you that I'm sorry. And that whatever punishment you and mom feel is appropriate. Whatever you feel you need to do to me, I'll accept it. I won't complain. I won't say a word. I deserve it. So here I am. I just felt like I needed to tell you. And I was like, ah! I mean, you want to you wanna just blast him, but how can you blast somebody like that? I mean... They're standing there staring you right in the eyes, saying, it's all my fault. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'm just here humbling myself. How do you blast somebody like that? I, I mean, I couldn't do it. Maybe I just couldn't do it. I, was, I tried a couple times, and I just couldn't do it. Finally, I said, all right, look, don't ever do that again to me. You understand? He said, you have my word. I gave him a big hug. I said, all right, right, let's forget it. I couldn't do it to him. And you know what the truth is, friends, our Heavenly Father is exactly the same way. The fastest and easiest way to access the mercy of God and activate it in your life when you've messed up, when it's your fault, is to own it. To own it without excuses, to own it without justification, just to own it and say, God, I did it and it was wrong. Because if we confess our sins, First John 1, 9, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you and I cannot confess what we don't own. If we haven't owned it, the confession is unauthentic and it doesn't work. You've got to own it first. David did that. Number two. Second thing David did is he humbled himself. Verse 14. He says in verse 14, here comes Absalom. We got to get out of this city. We got to leave immediately. Whoa, stop for a second. Does that strike you as strange? I mean, this guy's a warrior, right? This is the guy that marched out and beat Goliath, for goodness sake. This is the guy who led the army in victory over the Philistines, who's extended Israel's empire to its greatest length ever. Does it make sense that a guy like this will turn tail and and run like a coward out of town? Does that seem in character for David? Doesn't to me. You say, well, then why would he do something like that? Why didn't he stand his ground? Why didn't he fight? I'll show you why. Look at the rest of the verse. He says, we must leave immediately or Absalom will move quickly to overtake us and will bring ruin on us and put this whole city to the sword." Absalom is going to march in here, David says, and he's going to kill hundreds and thousands of innocent men, women, and children. I'm going to ask men to stand up and put their lives on their line and take arrows in the chest and and spears in the gut for me and die. I'm going to ask people's daddies to give their lives and people's mothers' sons to give their lives. And it's not their fault. This is all my fault. And there's no way in the world I'm going to ask innocent men, women, and children to die for something that's my fault. This is not a righteous battle God is asking us to go fight. This is my fault. Now, you know, an arrogant person wouldn't have cared. An arrogant person would have said, me, be humiliated, me, be degraded, me, be embarrassed and have to march out over the Mount of Olives barefoot? Are you kidding? I'm not doing that. And would have stayed there and sacrificed thousands of innocent people's lives to defend their own reputation and their own ego. David says, "Uh uh-uh. No, if there's a hit that needs to be taken, I'm going to take the hit. I'm going to humble myself and accept it. I'm not going to ask innocent people to take a hit for something they don't deserve. That's why Jesus said, he that humbles himself shall be exalted. That's why this man came back as the king of Israel. Because God honored that kind of humility when it's our fault and we're willing to humbly take the hit. And not pass that off on our friends or on other people. We win the heart of God, friends. We do. And God softens the blow for us. Third and finally. David not only owned his stuff and humbled himself, but third and finally, David threw himself totally on the mercy of God. Totally. Look at verse, verse 26. Verse 25, He said, now you take the ark back, and if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, He'll bring me back and see it. Verse 26, and if the Lord says, David, I am not pleased with you, you have lost my favor, then I am ready to accept that, David says, let God do to me whatever seems good to God. Whatever God decides, that's fine. My only plan to return to Jerusalem, my only plan as to how I could be restored to my throne, is the favor and the mercy of God. And if God is pleased with me, He'll work it out. And if God isn't pleased with me, I don't want it worked out. Whatever God wants, I'm okay. Now, you know, I've been, I've been a pastor for 19 years. I've had lots of people in my office in trouble. Usually of their own making. And it's very interesting to observe how people react You do this, I do this. It's a natural human tendency. We all do it. The first thing we want to do is start trying to figure out in our own effort, in our own wisdom, in our own energy, how we can scheme, connive, manipulate our way back to where we were. How we lost it. That's all we're worried about is how we can get back there. See, David didn't do that. David said, I'm not going to scheme my way back, manipulate my way back. I'm not going to try to figure out my way back. I'm just going to trust God. And if God wants me back, I'm going to throw myself on the mercy of God. God, I deserve worse than you're doing to me, David said. So I'm just throwing myself on your mercy. And if you want me to be king again, you make me king. Friends, this is a wonderful place to be in your life. Cast on the mercy of God. With God's mercy is plan A and not having a plan B. That's a wonderful place to be. Have you ever thought about in the Bible the greatest uh, interventions of God in human history we've ever seen? You know, think about it. You know, opening the Red Sea, Daniel in the lion's den, the three boys in the fiery furnace. I mean, did you ever think about the position that these people had put themselves in when God did that? Every one of those, think about it now, in every one of those cases, those people had cast themselves on the mercy of God plus nothing, and that's when God intervened. Down at the, at the Red Sea, what plan did Moses have to beat Yul Brenner? He didn't have a plan. There's no plan. You were going to die. That's the only plan if God doesn't do something. And what did God do? Hey, open the sea. When they threw Daniel in the lion's den, King Nebuchadnezzar even said to him, how do you think you're going to survive in there? Daniel said, beats me. All I know is if God decides to save me, God can deliver me. The three boys in the fiery furnace, where were they? King, we're not bowing down. You can throw us in there if you want. Our God is great enough to deliver us. And if he doesn't, oh, well, but that's the only plan we got. And I love Jehoshaphat, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 20. You can read about it. He wakes up one day, Jerusalem surrounded by armies. He, know he, can, he knows he can't beat them. So he gets up and he prays this prayer. Oh God, he said, we don't have any might against that army out there. We can't go out there and beat them. God, we don't even know what to do. I don't have a plan. But God, our eyes, read about it, verse 12, Second Chronicles 20, our eyes are on you. We're just cast on your mercy, God. What a wonderful prayer. I've prayed that prayer lots. And you know what? God stepped in and intervened for Jehoshaphat, and He stepped in and intervened for me. And if you pray that prayer, God will step in and intervene for you. God loves to see you in that position because it gives Him the platform to bear His arm and do something for you that you get no credit for. And God loves to be in that position. But if you're uh, conniving and scheming and manipulating and trying to figure it all out and pulling strings, hey, God will let you go on and do that all you want. But you want to see God step in. You throw yourself on the mercy of God. What did David do when he was in trouble? His own fault. Number one, he owned his stuff. He he took full responsibility for what he did. Number two, he humbled himself. He said, I'm going to take the hit. I don't want anybody else to take it. It's my problem. And number three and finally, he cast himself for deliverance on the mercy of God, not on his own human effort. Folks, this is the plan that works. It worked for David. I told you he came back and was king, right? And it's worked for hundreds of other people and thousands of other people down through the ages. It'll work for you. So next time you get yourself in trouble and there's nobody to blame but you, you try these three steps. Will God remove all consequences? Maybe not. But He will definitely soften them and He will definitely activate the leniency and the mercy of God for you. Let's pray. Father, thanks for talking to us about real life. Right down where we all live. Right in the world of mess-ups and poor choices and bad decisions that we all make. Thanks for teaching us a formula. A biblically proven formula for how we can activate the mercy and the leniency of God. How we can soften the blow when it's all our fault. And God, my prayer is that You would help us to, to practice this. In our daily lives, change the way we live in our daily lives. And I pray for some people here today who may have the chance to practice it today because they're in a mess. Lord, honor, as you've always done, when we're willing to process it this way. To own our stuff, humble ourselves, and throw ourselves on the mercy of God. So change the way we live because we were here today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.